our Lord and our God and our Heavenly Father, the God who uh, has made us, the God who has granted us life, the God who has provided for us salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ, the God who has blessed us as we have received the truth of the gospel. You have sent your Holy Spirit to rule and reign in our new hearts that you've granted us. It's all from you. It's all from your hand. It's nothing that we have done. The only thing we have done is sinned against you. We had nothing to pay that debt. But the gospel speaks to us that you paid it for us. We stand in awe of you this morning, Lord, to be reminded of what you've done for us. We're going to come to this communion table in a few minutes and again be reminded of the cost of our salvation. The committed death of your son at Calvary's cross we just sung about. Laying his life down willingly to accomplish your will for our lives, but for your sake, Lord. So, Lord, we thank you. We've learned all of this from your word and the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. As we turn to your word now, Lord, may your Holy Spirit unstop our stopped ears, take away the blindness from our eyes that we might see, grant our minds an understanding of what we're reading, and a heart, a new heart you've given us to believe and trust even more today. So thank you, Father, for visiting us today. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I'll get through this. So I have a question this morning. Are you happy? Are you happy? When you reflect on your life today, today, could you say, yes, I'm happy? And when we reflect on our lives to consider that answer, we have to take into account what's going on in our lives, the circumstances that will help us better understand and answer that question, are you happy? Many things go on in our lives that cause us happiness and joy. A month ago we were in Massachusetts full of happiness and joy holding our great-granddaughter. We can have joy and happiness in having a good job and good uh, financial support. We can, have, we can be happy in the family God has blessed us with. We can be happy with the church family that we are part of. We can be happy in so many different ways. But you and I know that we're not always happy, right? I attended calling hours for a friend in Casnovia this past week, hugged his daughter, and she was in sorrow and grief, crying tears of sadness. But the scriptures say, as I'm thinking, the scriptures say, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of festivity. Why? Because our, our lives are seen in the calling hours last week when we went 
and gave our condolences to the family of the father that had died. So our life, when it comes to being happy, is like a roller coaster. Some days it's great and we just enjoy life, we're happy, we have good relationship with our family and so on and so forth, but there are those points in life to where the roller coaster is down and we're not happy. So what do we do about our happiness when it's not there? Well, I must say we're going to turn to the scriptures to find out about happiness, true happiness. <clears throat> and the Lord is going to teach us and show us how to be happy no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what is going on, whether we're in the depths of despair or on the top of a mountain, the Lord's going to show us today how we can be truly happy, truly happy. So, let's go to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Now, some of you men who happened to be at Shiloh this past March at our men's retreat, this is the psalm we went to when I had opportunity to speak, Psalm 32. And I chose the psalm because I had been reading a book by Thomas Watson, who was, who was a Puritan, and he wrote a book about the godly man. And he took a lot of his reference and all of his material, a lot of his material, from Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And you might wonder why I read for our second reading Psalm 51. This is a Psalm of David, Psalm 32. This is a Psalm most Bible knowledgeable people realize this Psalm 32 was written after Psalm 51. After God convicted David of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, and God sent Nathan the prophet to convict him through a parable. And as we saw in Psalm 51, David confessed his sin. I have sinned against you and you only. And now in Psalm 32, he reflects on what God did after he confessed his sin. You know, one of the phrases is, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And this is Psalm 32. He is joying in the forgiveness of his sin and the happiness that it brought his heart and renewing a right relationship with God. So Psalm 32 speaks first of godliness, which I shared with the men, and those men who were there, um, it's been what, March, April, May, June, July, it's been three months. Um, you've probably forgot everything I said that day. So just because we're going over this Psalm again, you're not going to fall asleep, right? <laughs> right? Because this, this is entering into, and this is the beautiful thing about Scripture, you can read Psalm 32 and draw out of this who a godly man is. 
I'm going to try to draw out of this psalm again who a happy man or woman is. The depth of Scripture is so deep. That's why we need it. That's why we should read it often and meditate on it. So Psalm 32, reading verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. David writes, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, you, Lord, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you did forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place. You do preserve me from trouble. You do surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or the mule which has no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. David is happy here. He is expressing his joy, his gladness, his happiness that God has forgiven him. Psalm 51 was his confession, asking for forgiveness. And God has done it, and David knows it right well. So I would ask you this next question. <clears throat> Are you happy in this context, knowing God right well and all that he's done and accomplished for you? Have you confessed your sin to him daily and sensed God's forgiveness and cleansing, which keeps that level of happiness with your relationship with him right up there? So when I looked at this back in March, I looked at the definition of godliness, which is devotion, piety, reverence of God, and love of his character. Godliness. Does that describe you? Reverence of God and love of his character? When godliness is applied to the Christian life, it denotes a life that is acceptable to Christ, indicating the proper attitude of the believer toward Christ who saved him. It is both an attitude and a manner of life. It's just not a mindset. It's a heart set. And it's proven out in the way we live our lives as believers. I quoted back in March, Westminster Catechism, question one. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of you and me? Why do we have life? 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How we doing? Are we giving honor and glory to God and in doing that, are we enjoying him? I'm hoping so. Again, from um, gathering from Mr. Watson and what he shared from Psalm 32, David writes, a, he's, the title of his psalm, a psalm of David, a maskil, M-A-S-K-I-L. Do you have that in the heading? What does maskil stand for? Anybody got a footnote? This is an instructional passage of scripture. It is to teach us and instruct us of something, how to be godly and how to be happy. If you notice, it's broken down in um, several verses. And it's a song, so you can say these verses are actually stanzas. The first stanza is verse one and two. The first stanza is one and two. The second stanza is verses three and four. The third stanza is verse five. The fourth stanza is verses six and seven. The fifth stanza is verse eight, and the sixth stanza is verses nine through 11. So you break it down that way so that you can study it and meditate on it piece by piece, because each segment of it is important. It's, it's hard to move on to the next stanza if you haven't comprehended the first or the second under the third. So the first stanza is verses one and two, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So David is really sharing with us what God has done in his heart and in his life. The word blessed here in a literal translation actually means happiness. Happiness. How is it that David is happy here? Well, he's relating to us, first of all, three elements of his character and life in reflection of Bathsheba and Uriah. He uses three different words here. And again, a lot of times, just as we saw in Sunday school, that one verse we looked at, the baptism of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist, that verse where he, he comes up out of the water, the Son of God comes up out of the water, and a dove lights on him, and a Holy Spirit comes upon him, and the Father speaks. And what, what did we draw out about that verse? The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have a Trinity here of two different things in verses one and two. The Trinity of sin, in the words transgression, sin, and iniquity. And then we have God's dealing with those three things in our lives by the words, the three words, forgiven, covered, and not imputed. Okay? So this is all from God's side directing toward us in relationship to our need to be forgiven, our need to be our sin covered and our need to not have guilt. Many times as I was going over this passage, 
I thought about Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, they had a command, a simple command, don't eat of this tree, but if you do, you will certainly die. Eve is deceived. She causes Adam to sin. They become known as being naked before God, and what did they do? They went and hid. Did their hiding succeed? No. God knew exactly where they were, and when we sin and try to hide, as David tried to hide, when he sinned against Bathsheba, he tried to get her husband to come off the battlefield and go in and have relations so that the pregnancy would look like it was actually Uriah's son. David was trying to cover up his sin. Did it work? No. Why? Because God knew him. And God didn't want him to be unhappy, unforgiven. So, what are these three elements of sin? Transgression is defined as willful and rebellious act. A willful and rebellious act. Deliberate flaunting of God's known will. Deliberate flaunting of God's known will. Sin is a little different. Sin is a deviation from the mark or standard that God has set. Sin in its simple definition is uh, missing the mark. It's like shooting at a target, like I try to do once in a while sighting in my pellet gun, and I miss the whole target. I don't even come close to the bullseye. That's sin. We have missed the mark. And the mark God has set for us is his word. That's why when we're hiding our sin, we just we don't have any reason or desire to open up God's word and read it. Why? Because it convicts us, does it not? And then the other element is their iniquity, iniquity, all that is opposed to equity and righteousness. It is perversity. I thought of Jeremiah 17:9 about the human heart. What does Jeremiah 17:9 say? Anybody? About the human heart? The heart is desperately sick and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I like the next verse. God knows. We can't get away from our sin. We can't hide our sin. We can't cover it over. We can't point fingers and blame somebody else for something we're being accused of, like Adam and Eve did. Eve said, the serpent deceived me. Adam said, the wife you gave me said to me, we need to acknowledge our sin. Because when we do, the threefold action of God on our sin, verse 1, whose transgression is forgiven, forgiven, taken off, taken away, a burden is lifted or removed. And every time I wrote that and read that this past week, I thought about the, the hymn, Burdens Are Lifted from Calvary. What's our next hymn, folks? Look at your book. Huh? Burdens are lifted from Calvary. I looked it up this morning and read it, and I thought, oh, it'd be so nice to sing that today. It's here. I didn't tell anybody to put it in the bulletin. But God did. 
So that's forgiven, taken off, taken away. A burden is lifted. When we try to not deal with our sin with God, it's like a heavy weight upon us, as he's going to describe here for us. Covered, whose sin is covered. Sin is covered by God through Jesus, whose atonement is the propitiation, actually the covering of our sin, and that is a picture of the mercy seat in the temple of God, where the ark is, the ark of the covenant. And when they do the day of atonement, what does the great high priest of that day do once the sacrifice is given? He takes blood into the holy of holies before the mercy seat, and he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. That's a picture of Jesus Christ. He has done that for us. Therefore, we can be covered. Our sin can be covered. Then finally, the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's another element of being blessed and happy. The Lord does not impute iniquity, does not reckon to us, does not account to our sin debt. If we come to believe the gospel message that is in this book and God has brought to us uh, a seed of faith to believe and receive it, and Lord is our Lord and Savior, God does an amazing thing. He changes our heart for one thing, okay? And he doesn't hold us guilty. He doesn't hold us guilty. Even though, that was one of the phrases in one of our songs, even though he is omniscient, and what does omniscient mean? All-knowing, okay? He's all-knowing. He knows our beginning and our end and everything in between, but when we come to ask for forgiveness, being convicted of the sin that we've committed against him, like David did in Psalm 51, God now does not hold him guilty. Because there's going to be a day of judgment. It's going to be a courtroom. And we're going to be there. And God is going to have his son sitting as the judge. How are you going to stand? Well, we know where we've been. We know that we have sinned. We have broken the commandments of God. We have become enemies of God, rebelled against God, all of that former life. But now because we are in Christ, we stand before the judge in Christ and having the robe of righteousness given to us. And we stand there at the judgment seat, not guilty. Does that not give you some happiness? How often do we think about that? Just once a month when we have communion? I hope not. I hope it's a daily thing. We true believers should be the happiest people on the face of this earth. Even during times like we're going through. How many people do you know that are actually happy out there? Not many. I see a lot of hatred. I see a lot of violence. I see a lot of finger pointing and accusing. I don't see much happiness, true happiness. So those are the three elements that God uses to deal with our three elements of sin. 
Okay, and then finally, the end of verse 2, in whose spirit there is no guile, holding one's, hiding one's sin. That's guile, hiding one's sin. No false estimate of oneself. It says in uh, Galatians 6, um, I think it's verse 3, he who thinks he is something when he is nothing, he only deceives himself. And John, the apostle John, in his first epistle, in the first chapter, he says, if you say that you have no sin, you're only deceiving yourself. We can say that. I'm, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. You ever heard anybody say that? I might have even said that before Christ. I'm a good person. So the first stanza, verses 1 and 2, will help us understand First of all, where David's been, now where he is, receiving forgiveness because he's confessed in Psalm 51. Then we see a testimony of David in verses 3 and 4, his own personal testimony. He says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groanings all day long. Notice the word my throughout this. My sin, my body, my groaning, for day and night, God, your hand was heavy upon me. That was a phrase that kept bringing me back to Psalm 32. Lord, your hand was heavy upon me. You ever sense God's hand heavy upon you? There's a reason why. We're running away, trying to hide our sin like David. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of night, fever heat, fever heat of summer. And when I first read that back in March, I thought about a teenager on a farm in summer up in a haymow mowing away hay. Believe me, it gets extremely hot in a haymow. And when you come down after an afternoon of unloading hay, you are spent. That's how David feels about hiding his sin from God. He moaned and groaned all day and all night. His vitality, his life was drained away. Finally, Nathan comes, makes the statement, you're the man. And then David acknowledges his sin. Just going back to your hand was heavy upon me. I wrote here in my notes, Acts 9, 4, and 5. This is Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus to persecute the church there. And he meets the Lord. And it says, and he, Paul fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecute thou me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you persecute. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks, against the goads of the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you're just moaning and groaning and you sense your life is being drain from you, maybe God's hand is heavy upon you. 
Because God doesn't like you to be in that state. No, he wants to do something for you. So he lays his hand heavy upon you. Peter writes, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. The mighty hand of God. We need to know that he has a mighty hand. He can correct us. He can lift us up when we're down. Then the next stanza is verse 5. This is David still. I acknowledge my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Not to my neighbor, not to my wife, not to my son or daughter, confessing my sin unless I've sinned against them also. But every sin we commit is against the Lord. And David said, I confess my sin to you, O Lord. And what is the end of verse 5? And you, God, forgive the guilt of my sin. It's almost, as you read it, instantaneous. As soon as David confessed his sin to the Lord, God forgave him. God forgave him. And under that forgiveness, the covering, the taking away the burden, okay, not causing him to be guilty. It's already been settled at the cross of Calvary. So he enters into Verses 1 and 2, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's what David is saying here in his confession. And then the next stanza brings in, therefore. I mean, the Lord doesn't just write something for us and try to have us come to the conclusion. He gives us the conclusion. Therefore, what are we to do? Let everyone who is godly pray to God in a time when he may be found. Prayer. Prayer. That's how we're relieved of the burden of our sin. Praying to the God who can grant us forgiveness. Who can wash us whiter than snow. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Prayer. I'm a firm believer in that the devil has done, well, he's done several things in the church, but one thing that has caused so much problem within the church, he's convinced believers they don't need to pray. They don't need to pray. Well, if God knows everything, why should I have to inform of anything? If you truly pray to the Lord, something happens. First of all, you will realize and acknowledge who you are before and where he is. He's seated on his throne of grace with his listening ear bent toward you, wanting to hear you. Pray when he may be found, suggesting there might be a day when he won't be found. Then what are you going to do if you haven't received Christ? The Bible tells you what's going to happen. You're destined for the pit of hell. Is that what you want? Is that your choice? You hear a lot of people say, well, I, I'll probably go to hell where all my friends are. They don't know what they're saying. They haven't read this book. So he's acknowledging his sin. 
And then he gives us a conclusion of the matter. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when he may be found. Surely in the flood of great waters, they shall not reach him. What is the, the phrase, the flood of great waters? What do you think that is? The flood of great waters in a person's life. You ever been overcome with a flood of great waters of circumstances and troubles that you didn't see coming? All of a sudden, they're over you. What am I going to do? Whether it's a sickness, whether it's a circumstance with your finances, whether it is, you know, a friend or a family member who is sick, a flood of great waters will come over us. It's just the way life is. But what is a confession of sin and going to God in prayer going to accomplish? He says, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not reach him. They shall not reach him. So why does God even allow a flood of great waters? Any verses that come to mind? How about James chapter 1? He says, count it all joy, brothers, when you are, I'll better read it instead of trying to quote it because I'll probably quote it wrong. James 1. I will find it. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. What is that? It says here, Everyone who is godly, pray to thee in a time when thou may be found surely in a flood of great waters. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing in your faith. God allows these floods of great waters to come upon us. It's just part and parcel of the sinful world we live in. Jesus had them come on him all the time. How did he relieve himself of the flood of great waters? He went up on a mountain often and prayed all night to the Father. Now if Jesus was one who needed to pray a lot, why do we think we're excused from praying? Pray. Pray. When I started being your pastor here so many years ago, I had a sense that we as a congregation were ignorant of the scriptures. I knew I was. <laughs> and so I just told my wife, I think I just need to take my baseball bat and beat it on the pulpit. She never let me leave the house with a baseball. Because God said to me, don't do that. You just pray. Because I know what God did to me after I got saved. He gave me a burning desire to read the Bible. And that's what I prayed for this congregation. And now look, we stand up in the morning, we read together the call to worship. One voice reading the word of God. We have Bible studies. We're asking people to, to have a daily Bible reading schedule. And hopefully we are doing that. Why? It's going to change our life as a personal individual and change our life as a congregation. And it has, but there's a lot more that needs to be 
done. So therefore pray. And then he says, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You do surround me with songs of deliverance. You preserve me from trouble. I thought about Sue every once in a while will put up jars of preserves or will be blessed with Sabrina's putting up jars of preserves. What do you do with fruit and preserve it? Well, you prepare it, you seal it, and it's preserved. It's good. That's what he says. He says, you preserve me from trouble. He guards us. He has us in the palm of his hand. He guards us from trouble that is going to just totally draw us away from him. What did Jesus say? You are in the Father's hand, and you are also in my hand. Nobody can snatch you away. That's God and his relationship with true believers. Should that not cause us to be a little bit happy this morning? That God has got us in his hand and he's guarding us and keeping us. And then he makes this statement, you surround me with songs of deliverance. And at the end of that verse, if you notice, it says Selah. Do we know what Selah means? Pause in this song and consider what you just sang. Songs of deliverance. What is the songs of deliverance? It's the gospel message reminding us over and over and over again. Why do we have communion at least once a month? Why? To remind us of all that God has accomplished and done for us. Why? Because we tend to forget. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I forget. Songs of deliverance. I, I remembered this one verse from Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will renew you in his love. He will joy over you with singing. What does that say? When we come to know Christ and continually follow him, continually confessing and asking for forgiveness, Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are singing joy over us. Is that a picture you have of God singing joy over you? That's a happy thought, is it not? Then David allows God to speak in his song here in verses eight and verse eight. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Focus on the word, my eye. My eye is upon you. There's nothing that we can hide from God because he can see us wherever we are. But he is so intent on teaching us and counseling us in the way that he would desire us to go. He does it with uh, instruction. He does it with his counsel. He does it with his eye upon us. His eye upon us. When we stop to consider who we really are, even after coming to know Christ and trusting in him, the times that we stumble, the times that we fall back into a sin we just can't seem to get rid of, 
God still loves us. His eye is still on us. I mean, he could cast us into the outer darkness in a minute or in a second. But that's not who God is at this point in our lives. And then he talks about, he brings in a, a, a great illustration that in, in David's time was very appropriate because it dealt with their lives, horses and mules. He says, do not be, do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding. So as sinners not converted, we are lacking understanding. Basically what he says, because we are like a horse or a mule, stubborn, resisting God in every aspect of our lives. Don't be as a horse or mule. The only way you can have a horse or mule obey you is to put a bit and a bridle in their mouth and therefore you can hopefully control them. Sometimes a horse, even with a bit and bridle, wants to go its own way. Boom, there you go. Hopefully you can stay on his back. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. That's the difference between, he's bringing that illustration of horse and mule down to the next verse. Many are the sorrows of the wicked who have no understanding. They can't even be directed in a way that would help them know who God is. They just reject it all. Stubborn, prideful, wanting to do it their own way. And what does that bring? It brings a wicked heart to flourish, and that brings sorrows. That's the opposite of being blessed, right? The sorrow of an unrepented heart. But, verse 10, he who trusts in the Lord, he who trusts in the Lord and all that God has revealed and, and said, I have done this for you. And he points us to Jesus Christ and he points us to Calvary, which we've been singing about this morning. It is finished, it is done, it's, it's, it's accomplished for our salvation. And he brings that, that amazing accomplishment of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, and he offers it to us as a free gift, a free gift. When was the last time you were offered something free? And you took it and you found out, well, <laughs> uh, it's not free. The only free thing it's what God offers us in salvation. It's free. It's a gift. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. The Lord will come and just surround you with his loving kindness, his grace, his mercy, his love, all that he is. And then he commands us in verse 11. Verse 11 is a command, is it not? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Isn't that an element of somebody who is happy? Someone who is blessed? That their transgression is forgiven, their sin is covered, and the Lord doesn't impute guilt. You're freed. Talking about July 4th, freedom. We're freed from the, the power and the control of sin and death. 
Why? Because Jesus conquered it all at Calvary. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and joy and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Upright in heart means in right relationship with God, upright. That which is right in the heart. Notice it's in the heart. Our issue with God is a heart issue. And he speaks to our heart every time we open this book. And he does amazing things to our heart when we open and read and study this book. Because we've been blessed as true believers with God the Holy Spirit residing in me. Do you understand that? I don't. God who before foundation of time was, now is, and will always be. That's the God person of the Holy Spirit in you and in me. I, I can't comprehend that. But it's the truth. And then he calls us to shout for joy. Shout for joy. Again, we should be, as true believers, the happiest people on the face of the earth. The most blessed people on the face of the earth. So, God, through his servant David, speaks to us today about the godly man and the happy and blessed man or woman and what it is that takes and what it is that makes him so. First comes the knowledge of our sin, transgression, and iniquities that have separated us from God. Second comes the heavy hand of God and the pricking goads of the Holy Spirit on our wicked and deceitful heart. Thirdly, hopefully, our response to the conviction of God brings to our heart, who God brings to our heart, is the confession and acknowledging of our offense to the holy God. Lord, I've sinned against you, David, Psalm 51, and you only. Then, upon our seeking God's forgiveness, he brings that pardon and cleansing of our heart so that we need so that we so need to be right with God who has made us and saved us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Once God has done his redeeming work in us, he begins to teach, guide, and counsel us in the way he desires us to go. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. If you make him king and lord over your life, your path will be directed by him. Is he able to direct us in that path? Yes, he is. The blessing of all this is we shall experience God's loving kindness, mercy, grace, and everlasting love for all eternity. This is just the start, folks. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. The question for all of us is, are we the godly and happy men and women God desires us to be? That's the question. Does this psalm speak of who I am? If so, may God continue to work in us, Philippians 1, 6, until he sends his son to receive us, his bride, to be with him forever. That's the promise of God. And what do we know about God's promise? Promises. He fulfills them all, all of them. <clears throat> if there is a question in your heart and mind of where you stand with God, 
Follow David's advice. Seek God's forgiveness through your confessing of your sin and ask him to forgive you, and he will. It's a simple act of choice. Lord, I acknowledge my sin before you. I certainly need the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please forgive me, and he will. It's simple, but sometimes not very easy. Why? We're like a horse and a mule, proud. We're kind of set in our ways. Then you will begin, once that happens and you're forgiven, then you will begin to know him as your God and Savior, learning more of him as you read the Bible daily and pray to him. May God be full of all glory, honor, and praise from our hearts. Let's pray.